Hey, welcome to our worship gathering. It's, it's great to be with you on this lovely Lord's Day morning. Um, after taking five Sundays off to focus on the Protestant Reformation, we are engaging in our expository series in 1 Corinthians called Correcting Carnality in Christ's Church. It was back on uh, September 25th when we were last in this, when we studied four truths about Christian ministers in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. I bet nobody in here remembers what they are because your pastor couldn't even remember them. Uh, firstly, they are Christian ministers are first and foremost servants of Christ. Secondly, they are stewards of the mysteries of God, basically the whole scripture, especially the gospel. Thirdly, they are steadfast in their commitment to scripture. And fourthly, they are not to be judged by worldly standards like the Corinthians were doing, was what we focused on on the 25th of September. And I would simply say as a reminder, if a man consistently exhibits these godly qualities, he should be taken seriously and should be honored as a Christian minister. First uh, Timothy 5.17, of course, that's not to say that there aren't other qualifications. There are, but those are a good sign if he has those qualities. If not, he should be either retrained or removed. It's that simple. And I would say go for the retraining first, and if he's receptive to that, then, you know, you can work with him. If not, he's probably a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, if these very simple biblical principles were actually applied, I think, here in the U.S., a great many so-called Christian ministers would actually be out of a job. The great downgrade controversy of Spurgeon's day was the infill of Victorianism in the Baptist Union of Britain. In American evangelicalism, it is the infiltration of unqualified men in pastoral offices. That's basically what we're dealing with here, and that's the problem with American evangelicalism. You can put just about anyone in a pulpit, whether they're qualified or not. And, of course, if you have unqualified men in the pulpit, you end up with unqualified saints in the pews. And then you end up with all sorts of bad stuff. And we do see that, unfortunately, and that's what we pray for, that we would see real revival and real pastors rise up and engage in this thing, the gospel. In the next section, that was what we talked about on the 25th. In the next section, Paul issues his, I would call it his final correction concerning carnality. And it is by far, hands down, his most devastating Correction, I even see in his epistles. It's just, it's just brutal in a way, in a good way. He just hammers them over this carnal unity and all the divisions that are coming through it. He just really lays it out there as he basically starts to wrap up this section on disunity or carnal unity. And so that's what we'll be looking at today, his most stern, most sarcastic correction yet. And we'll find out and discover how gracious it actually is. It's amazing that you wouldn't think that sarcasm and sternness would be married to grace, but boy, they've been together for a long time in Scripture. Sometimes that is. So that's what we're going to look at today as we kind of begin to wrap up the section on carnal unity. We'll have one more message in it, and then we move on to the next subject that Paul deals with. Please take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Corinthians We'll be looking at chapter 4, 6 to 13. This will be a standard issue, three-point sermon. I'd like to pray before we get to work. Lord, thank you for this time that we've had together so far. Lord, I pray that we would be extra attentive, paying real close attention, attention to what you're going to say here this morning through your word. Lord, I pray that, uh, that I would speak precisely what you want me to speak, and this audience would hear precisely what you want them to hear. Lord, sanctify us now, we pray in Christ's precious name, amen. Let's pick up where we left off on the, on the 25th of September and look at our first point, our first point, real simple, our point number one, Paul corrects the Corinthians for going beyond Scripture. We see this in verses 6 to 7. 
basically kind of rebukes them or corrects them, admonishes them for attempting to go beyond what is written for trying to go beyond Scripture. And they're, they're doing this through their behavior and their carnal unity and these sorts of things. And we'll pick it up in verse 6a. I've got to break up some of these verses into A, Bs, and Cs because there's just so much going on. But look at 6a with me. First thing Paul says after unleashing those four biblical truths about ministers, he's going to, now he's talking about the apostles. Here's how you ought to see the apostles. But first thing he says is in 6a is... I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. What, is, what did Paul apply? What is he talking about here? What did he apply to himself and to Apollos for the benefit of this church and for the benefit of all real churches? Well, obviously, he's referring to what he just talked about in verses 1 to 5. Those four truths concerning Christian ministers, that's what he's talking about. He is saying, I have applied these things to myself. You could even take it further. These things have even been applied to the other apostles. We have applied the above truths that I just mentioned to you, those four distinctions about Christian ministers. We've applied them to ourselves. Why? So that we do not view Christian ministers and apostles in a carnal, competitive way. We're applying the, I'm applying the truths that I've just unpacked for you to myself so that I don't make your error, so that I don't begin to see Peter as something beyond what he is or Apollos as something beyond what he is and start rallying behind them. And he's saying, we're applying these truths to ourselves. And this is a huge point here, a sub-point, a side point, is that the first person to apply the truth is the minister. If the minister doesn't apply the truth to himself, but he wants you to apply it, find another church. Because we are not above that. We are the first one to be impacted and challenged and even corrected at times by the scripture. And it is our duty as Christians, not just as ministers, to apply the truth to ourselves. We've got to apply it to ourselves before we can start telling our people what to apply. Because I tell you what's dangerous is a real hypocrite in the pulpit. Now we're talking about what we just mentioned, unqualified men in pulpits, which leads to just all sorts of shenanigans. And he's telling them, hey, we've applied the very, very same things to ourselves so that we don't make the error that you're making. Because if we followed your lead, us apostles would be divided and blowing everything apart. And they had some tensions and issues, but they sorted through those things. Paul hammered Peter for acting a fool at one time, but they sorted through those things. You're just not going to find the apostles competing with one another or leading their little factions. And when that did arise with Peter and the circumcised, circumcision group, it was dealt with by Paul. He rebuked the man, and they got back in line to where they should be. So he's just saying, hey, we apply these things to ourselves. And he says this is to your benefit. What benefit did he have in mind here? We see it in the next line, 6b. Here's the benefit, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. So the benefit here is basically twofold. First, the Corinthians would learn, they would learn by us not to go beyond what is written. When a believer has a carnal, competitive view of their ministers like the Corinthians did when they divide over these things and battle and compete over these things, he or she is going beyond what is written. When, when we, if we cultivate and hold a view of Christian ministers that isn't biblical, it's not just that we're making a mistake. We are. We're adding to or subtracting from or going beyond what is written, which is a much more serious offense than a standard issue error. Paul says, we taught you these truths. We're following them for your benefit so that you don't go beyond Scripture because that's what you're doing. You're going beyond Scripture. If we define a Christian minister in a way that's not scriptural, we are going beyond what is written. And how does the Bible define what a Christian minister is? Go back to verses 1 to 5. Go to 1 Timothy. Go to Titus. 
those five verses there, verses 1 to 5 in chapter 4, those verses are New Testament Scripture, the Word. They define Christian ministers, not fully, but in a good way. But I don't think that that's what Paul was referring to here. I don't think he was talking about what he just wrote. He probably was, but not just that. I think he's actually referring to the more familiar Old Testament, which also defines ministers. Passages like Exodus 19.22, let the priests, who were the priests, ministers, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. That is what is essentially being said in Ezekiel is, is the priests need to practice what they're preaching. They need to consecrate themselves before the Lord through confession and repentance. But that is a def, that is one of the things that defines a minister. They, 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 are, they themselves are to be consecrated and to be prepared as ministers. Paul could have been pointed to that. And that's actually uh, Exodus 19.22, pardon me. Now, in Ezekiel 44.23, it says, Speaking of ministers, they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. There's a distinction for a minister. Paul could have been pointing to that. Also in Malachi 2.7, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. I mean, those are just three simple character qualities that, that make up a, a, a minister, an Old Testament minister and a New Testament minister. I think Paul was pointing to the Old Testament. He might have had these verses and a great many more in mind, as well as 1 through 5 of chapter 4 of First. Corinthians. What's Paul's point? It is that Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, defines what a minister is, and when a believer tries to shade or expand the meaning by incorporating worldly nuances such as oratory skill, communication technique, and so on, he or she is now going beyond what is written. I remember... It wasn't all that long ago when I had learned that one of the qualities that a church that I was familiar with, what they looked for in a Christian minister, one of the qualities was chemistry. They have to have good chemistry. And I was like, can you show me where it says that? No, I don't think they were intending to harm the word or mislead people, but you are now, when you say that, and when you look for that, you are now going beyond what is written. Do I think that good chemistry in a minister is a good thing? I guess so. I don't even know what that means. Whenever I think of chemistry, I think of dating, so no. <laughs> Chemistry.net, meet your next Christian wife. I mean, it's like, what is this? Your next Christian wife. Notice how I put that in there. You're supposed to have one. I don't know where I'm going, but chemistry? What, what does that mean? People have to be able to get along with him? That's godliness. That's not chemistry. People have to like him. Nobody has to like a Christian minister. If he preaches the gospel, nobody will. Likeability? Ah, just nonsense. You're adding to the word. And this is and was the error of the Corinthians. And, and it was not just an error, it was far more serious than they had anticipated. Hence, we have this text that is just insane. Very, very serious. Why is, why is going beyond what is written very, very serious? Because it is equivalent to and the same as adding to or subtracting from Scripture. It's the same thing. There may not be a deliberacy behind, you know, behind uh, going beyond what is written. You might just have your ideas and do that. And you're not trying to add or subtract, but it really is the same thing whether you recognize it or not. And what does the Bible say about adding to or subtracting from Scripture? Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. 
Now, there's a warning right in the front of the Bible that says don't add to or subtract from it. Of course, if you read further down in chapter 4, it talks about what happens if you do that. It talks about idolatry and all sorts of things. Proverbs 30, 5 and 6, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. You think being rebuked by the Lord and being found a liar is a good thing? Who's the father of lies? You're now acting like the devil. Not good. I think the sternest warning we see about adding to or subtracting from or going beyond what is written is in Revelation 22, 18 to 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, and I think he's talking about the whole scripture, not just Revelation, because we already see the warnings in other places in scripture. But he says, I warn anyone who, who hears the words of this prophecy, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Okay, so, so, so the judgment or the punishment that comes, the divine punishment, the divine judgment that comes from God to those who go beyond what is written, to those who add to or subtract from the scripture is, is this according to the verses that I just read to you. Okay, all the way back in Deuteronomy. Number one, dispossession of the covenant. That's in Deuteronomy 4, chapter 4, verse 26. That means that you probably were really never under the covenant, but if you were in a way, you were dispossessed, removed from it can't add to God's word. You can't subtract from it because the covenant is based on his word. And when you modify the word, you've just taken yourself out of the covenant. So dispossession of the covenant. That sounds pretty serious. Like you're not part of God's family. Uh, how about removal from the promised land? Deuteronomy 4. 27, the very next verse, removal from the promised land. Is the promised land Palestine, the area of Israel? It is in a sense, but I think in the bigger picture, it is heaven and then the kingdom to come. What is it? It's just removal from it. it again, the idea of you're not in the covenant, you're not even rightfully in the land that God has given as a possession to his faithful people. I mean, th these, are, these are big indictments. Then, of course, we've got that divine rebuke and you being as exposed as a liar. Proverbs 30, verse 6, pretty serious. You're now like your father, the liar of liars, Satan. And then you've got the plagues of revelation, right? And where are the plagues? And, and here's the thing. I talk about these plagues. I never talk about the plagues themselves, but I'll talk about how that is something that the person who goes beyond gets, but we never actually talk about what the plagues are. We just know there's plagues in the book, and, and those are pretty terrifying, and, and I don't want to be hit with those if I violate God's word, but what are they? Well, they're actually recorded in Revelation 16, 2 to 21. They're essentially equivalent to the bull judgments. Terrible sores, poisoned waters, scorching heat, and I think scorching heat could just be drought, uh, the beast is cast down, is one of the plagues of the book of Revelation. The beast is cast down. And I'll talk about this in a moment. You have droughts. And then you have here one of the plagues that we see in the book in chapter 16 is that the kingdom of Satan is destroyed. Now, these are the plagues in Revelation and what does it say in chapter 22? This is what you get when you add to or subtract from the book. Now, the question that I want to ask is, because there's different views on this, and I want to be sensitive to everyone in the room, but did you pay attention to the, to the plagues, terrible sores, poisoned waters, lots of heat, the beast is cast down, droughts, the kingdom of Satan is destroyed. In some end times views or some eschatologies, these things are a future event to come, primarily after 
the first coming of Christ and the rapture of the church, and then, they, then they're unleashed on the earth. That's a view. That's the dispensational view. And I held that view for a long time, and I still wrestle with it, but I just want you to stop and think about something. Terrible sores, sores poisoned water, scorching heat, the beast has cast down droughts, the kingdom of Satan is, is destroyed. Are these actually things to come, or are they present-day realities? Or are they present-day realities and to come? Because we certainly see leprosy in these things of the world. We see water problems and issues. You drink water in parts of the Middle East, you end up with dysentery or malaria. That's poisoned waters. We see scorching heat everywhere. Why people continue to live in it, I don't know. We're in the Central Valley. We're fools. The beast is cast down. You might say, well, that's, a, that's definitely a reference to probably the Antichrist or a future thing. But in some other eschatologies, People view the beast and the Antichrist as Pope and the papacy, which is not a bad point. But you say to yourself, but they haven't really been cast down. Yes, they have, the Reformation. They have been cast down. Fully? No. But they have been hammered by the Lord through the Protestant Reformation. Roman Catholicism does not have the strength today that it had prior to that. What am I saying? Is that the ultimate reality of what's said here in Revelation? It could be. All I'm saying is, is that if popes and papacy are the beast to be cast down, not some really handsome blue-eyed guy named Nikolai, if that's what we're talking about here, then it is totally possible for this to be transpiring before our very eyes. And then the point that's even more difficult here as a present-day reality, which I don't think it's difficult, but it could be for you, is the kingdom of Satan being destroyed. That's certainly... The, now, keep in mind, these are realities that will transpire. And you might say to yourself, well, in my particular end times view, Satan is ultimately destroyed later and his kingdom is destroyed. But how then do we deal with Colossians 2.15, which talks about what Jesus did at the cross which ultimately brought Satan to ruin and destroyed him. How do we deal with 1 Peter 3.19 where Jesus, it seems like in the symbolism, goes down and proclaims victory to the spirits who are kept in bondage down below. If there's a victory over demonic forces and Satan at the cross, then it sounds to me like the kingdom of Satan has been in a sense destroyed or that it is being destroyed compliments of the cross. What am I telling you? What I'm telling you is that these might not just be futuristic realities, that we see expressions of them today. Think of it like this logically, because logic is good. If receiving these, these terrible plagues is a punishment for adding to or subtracting from Scripture, that's a prolonged or delayed punishment, or is it a present-day reality? Dispossession from the covenant was a present-day reality. Being removed from the promised land was a present-day reality. So think about it. Use your mind. Don't just, don't just err on the side of your eschatology. Really think through what is being said in Revelation. And this is a challenge that, that I've accepted lately. I have my status quo views, and I've been challenging them by reading other material. It's okay to do that. If, if you move from, if, 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 if we hadn't done this, the majority of us in this room, and I'm not, I'm not slamming those who haven't, because God has every one of his children in process, but if I hadn't began to explore about 15 years ago, I would probably be in, still in a soteriology that I don't think is biblical. But I began to read and look beyond what I was comfortable with and familiar with. And my position began to change as I began to see it elucidated in Scripture. And the same thing can happen with your end times view or any other view. It's okay. And that's not the point of this sermon, but boy, would I like to talk about this more. These are, these are punishments. These are judgments against those who add to or subtract from the Scripture who those, to those who go beyond what is written. That's the reality of what's being said here.
The last one here is no share in the tree of life or life in the holy city, the new Jerusalem, Revelation 22, 19. You get the idea here that the person who goes beyond goes under and doesn't, and, 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 and it subtracts from Scripture and goes beyond and adds to it, this person is just not in the fold of God in any way. To put it more plainly, because now I've, I've hit you with all sorts of theology, those who practice and perpetuate this error, they're going to experience divine judgment and they will ultimately be destroyed. That's the bottom line. That's how serious... This is. It's not just like, well, you know, he just made a little mistake and went beyond Scripture. That is an attack on God's Word. That is an attack on His Word. What, what is Paul doing here, essentially? Is he trying to frighten them? Well, maybe, but what he's really doing is working to get the Corinthians to change direction. To prevent them from going down the path of adding Scripture Latin for adding to scripture, which is an on-ramp to the broad road of destruction. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to prevent them from that. So that's one of the benefits. The second benefit that, you know, by them believing what they're preaching and modeling it, the Corinthians would benefit by having their pride challenged. He says it like this, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Pride was the driving force behind the carnal cliques and competitions that brought jealousy, strife, and divisions in this body. Well, I follow Paul. Well, you're not all that great because we follow Apollos. Oh, yeah? We follow Cephas. All of you are lame because this group follows Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, or 12, and then over in chapter 3, verse 3. Pride was driving all of this Topping the list of seven detestable things that God hates is haughty eyes. Proverbs 6.16, what is haughty eyes? It is a prideful look, a prideful gaze. It can also refer to pride in general. The basic meaning of that proverb is that God detests pride. Human pride is an abomination to him. He despises it. He hates it with fervency. Scripture also says, of course, following that, God opposes the proud. James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5. It also says the prideful will be humbled. They'll be brought real low. Proverbs 29, 3, Matthew 23, 12. It also says, and we're all familiar with this, pride goes before the fall. Proverbs 16, 18. That's what the Bible says about pride. I suppose the Edomites serve as a classic example of what it means to have pride and then how that pride just it comes before a big fall because of, the, because of arrogance of heart. Edom fell to never literally rise again. It says in Obadiah 1, 3 to 4, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling who say in your heart, who will bring down, who will bring us down to the ground? Nobody. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And what happened to them? After that, the prophecy came true and they were obliterated by Babylon. Have you ever heard of an Edomite now? They don't exist. That people group is gone. Wiped off the face of the earth for their pride. Other prophets echo this theme. Uh, we see this generally represented in a, a handful of verses. The, the proud one shall stumble and fall with no one to raise him up. Jeremiah 50, 32, Isaiah 28, 3, Ezekiel 31, 10 to 12, Zephaniah 3, 11, Zechariah 10, 11, Perhaps the most dramatic and consequential illustration of pride going before a fall is seen in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve proudly chose their own way and transgressed God's law, they caused all mankind to fall into sin. They caused all creation to be placed under curses. Their prideful fall is the catalyst. It preceded and came before 
Every following prideful fall, it all started there. You can literally tie every prideful fall in a chronological order all the way back to the original one in chapter 3 of Genesis. Problem is, the Corinthian church was filled with detestable, deadly pride. In the next line, Paul asks three sarcastic questions that were meant to crush the Corinthians' high view of themselves. Verse 7a, for who sees anything different in you? This was Paul's way of saying, do you think you were above other believers in the church? Why do you think your group is better than any other? You are made of the same stuff that they are made of. You have been redeemed by the same Lord that they have been redeemed by. You're no better than them. You have nothing to boast about. All of that meaning is packed into that simple sarcastic statement. Verse 7b, what do you have that you did not receive? This was Paul's way of saying, what does anyone have that in one way or another was not given to him or her? God has given preachers and teachers as gifts to the church. They belong to all believers everywhere, not just to your little groups. If it weren't for God, you'd have nothing at all. See, they're latching on to these ministers and proclaiming them as, this is my minister. And then in 7C, Paul hammers them with this one. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This was his way of saying, since you receive everything from God, especially preacher teachers, why do you act like you discovered them? And then, and then why do you go out and boast about how they belong to you or how maybe they even came from you or represent you and you alone? There is so much sarcasm in these little short expressions. It's unbelievable. What Paul was ultimately saying is, who do you think you are? You ever had somebody tell you that? That stings. Well, I think I'm the pastor of Redemption Hill Church. <laughs> what you are is an idiot right now. Who do you think you are? Let's move to our second point. He was correcting them for, for their attempts to go beyond what is written. And he already starts thrashing their pride at the end of that segment. Number two, point number two, Paul pours contempt on the Corinthians' pride. We see this mostly concentrated in verse 8, although it's threaded through the whole text. He says, and look, no, notice again, look at the expressiveness here. I, I want to try to say it like he would say it, but I don't know Greek like that. Already you have all you want. See the exclamation point? Already you have become rich, exclamation point. Without us, you have become kings, exclamation point. And would that you did reign so that we might share rule with you, exclamation point. So to further unmask their terrible conceit, Paul is just heaping on tons and tons of feigned praise, sarcastic feigned praise. He is telling the Corinthians that they are satiated with every good thing. You've got it all. You are wealthy like royalty, rich like Croesus. You've got it all. You have arrived. Woo! Man, I wish I could be like you. Now, here's the trouble, man. These people had such an inflated view of themselves. If we didn't have the context, they would have taken what Paul's saying literally and at face value and said, we really are the bee's knees, aren't we? <laughs> you know, it's about time somebody recognizes us. I like me, Stuart Smalley, you know. They would have taken this literally if, if, if there wasn't a context here and maybe all the exclamation points, although they would twist those and say, look, he really is into us. He's almost into us as much as we are into ourselves. He's just blasting them. 
This is exactly what they thought of themselves. They would have taken it literally. The Corinthians are convinced that they are spiritually filled, abounding in riches, and ruling in the world. And we're not talking about the shared rule with Christ in the world that believers will experience when Christ comes and how they experience that now in a sense. These, are, these people are acting like rulers now, prideful rulers, you know, lording things over each other like the Gentiles do that Paul talks about. It's just, he's just getting them with the sarcasm. It's just brutal. Paul even suggested they had received their crowns from Christ. Man, you've already been crowned and enthroned by Christ. And by the way, you didn't have any uh, assistance at all from Apollos or me or the other apostles. You did this on your own. <laughs> Toward the end of verse 8, Paul wishes that they actually did reign so that he might rule with them. But that's not the case. They weren't at that level yet. They think they are, but they're not. The Corinthians were not reigning in that full sense. Therefore, they had no cause to glory like the way they were glorying at all. The fact of the matter is they were much more like Laodiceans. They thought they were rich and in need of nothing, but in reality they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Revelation 3.17. What does pride do? It causes us to take on a false view of ourselves. We see ourselves as better than we actually are. I think you can define Christian maturity by somebody coming to a real realization about their Christian life and themselves, and they don't see themselves as high but very, very low. That's a mark of maturity, not that you see yourself high. And it really frustrates me because you've got churches all over the place that are talking about how great you are. You're not great. Your king is great. Getting fired up. Let's move to our third and final point. So he just, just hammers them over their pride in verse 8. He continues to in the next section, but it's a little different. Number three, point number three. Paul compares the Corinthians to the apostles. Verses 9 to 13. This is going to be fun. Okay? Obviously and ultimately our highest goal is to compare ourselves to Christ. And as soon as we do that, we realize we are chasms away from where he was. But Paul just wants to show the example and life of the apostles so that the Corinthians will actually see themselves in a better light and see the apostles rightly because they've got this crazy view of the apostles like they're rock stars. Verses 9 to 13, we pick it up in verse 9, moving right along. Tons of sarcasm. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Before actually making a series of comparisons a little bit further down, Paul is using military language here to describe the lowly position of the apostles in the eyes of the world. In antiquity, when a victorious army returned from battle, the entire city would gather along the streets to welcome home their heroes. And at the front of the processional or procession were all the commanding officers, all the bigwigs, all the leaders, the generals and what have you, captains and sergeants and all that. They'd be out in the front. By the way, they usually do very little in battle, so in my opinion, you'd put the soldiers up front but I guess the commanding officers are the ones that wrote up the plans and all that, so I guess they should get that. Maybe it's because they went to college. I don't know. But at the front, you've got the commanding officers, and then came the soldiers who did all the work. And then after that came the booty. That's all the prize and gold and everything that they took from that nation or kingdom they devastated and destroyed. And right behind the booty would be the prisoners of war, the POWs. And those POWs were either sentenced to forced servitude or to public execution. How terrible is it that you, got your, you get your rear end, your hind end whooped in war, then you're taken as a POW just to be slaughtered and killed in front of the people whom you were an enemy of? Rome did this all the time. So did the Greeks. So did the Babylonians. It's hardcore. 
envision with me this parade with these commanders out front and then the soldiers and then, and then donkey truckload of, of gold and silver and jewels and all these priceless things that are being brought over pots and pans, earthenware, all this stuff. And then all these, all these embattled, you know, embe uh, uh, I guess that's a word I don't know, but beat up, pulverized soldiers that are chained just walking together. Um, see that with me. That's the imagery that Paul is using here. He is telling the Corinthians that he and the apostles are like the last of all, the POW sentenced to death. And to further illustrate their lowliness, he adds, we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. This is a reference to the Roman games, the gladiatorial games. That was called in those days a spectacle. You've seen the Colosseum in pictures. Maybe you've stood before it. Lucky you, take me next time. That was a place where they had Roman spectacles, where prisoners would train to fight one another to death or to fight wild beasts such as lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. That's a spectacle. And that's what he's talking about here. We're the last of all like POWs. We're even like those who have been put into the spectacle at the Colosseum. Schreiner, Thomas Schreiner has a good quote here. The apostles have become a spectacle in the world like those in the gladiatorial arena for both angels and human beings. Yet a spectacle not of triumph but of suffering and defeat. You know, what Paul is doing here is he is intentionally drawing a sharp contrast. The apostles are last of all. They are a spectacle like men who have been sentenced to death or sentenced to be eaten by lions in the arena or sentenced to be killed by other gladiators in the arena. That's what they are like in the eyes of the world. And yet the Corinthians, here's the contrast, they are rich and royal and reigning. So they thought. What did Jesus say about social order? The first will be last, and the last shall be first. Matthew 19, 30, and of course, in the next chapter, chapter 20, verse 16. The apostles were last of all. Why were they last of all? Well, I think... Firstly, it's because they were humble and put themselves below others, like Christ did. And secondly, they were last of all because the world hated them for following Christ. The Corinthians, on the other hand, were absolutely nothing like the apostles. Nothing. No resemblance. If they didn't bear a resemblance to the apostles, they sure as heck didn't bear a resemblance to Christ. Their prosperity and triumph indicate that they had more in common with the persecutors of Christians than with the apostles. That is the sting and the blast of Paul's statement here. You're more like those who put us to death than like us who are being put to death. I mean, this is hardcore, man. This is, this is like where people leave the church after reading this because they were never even part of it. Or it's where people actually come to their senses and repent. And that's what happened with many of these Corinthians reading the second letter. This is heavy. They're nothing like the apostles. In verses 10 to 13a, Paul launches a salvo of sarcastic comparisons that were meant to further wreck the Corinthians' pride. I'll just fly through these. Verse 10a, and this is the way, again, he's, he's contrasting and comparing the apostles to the Corinthians, and this is how the world views the apostles and probably how the Corinthians want to be viewed in the world, which is not the same thing as the apostles. He says this in 10a, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Total sarcasm. Verse 10b, we are weak, but you, of course, are strong. <laughs> 10c, we, or you, pardon me, not we, 
you are held in honor. Everybody likes you, especially your own brothers and sisters there in the church. And a great many of those pagan philosophers, they love you guys. They hold you in honor. But everybody holds us in disrepute. And then 11 and 12a, to the present hour we hunger and thirst Speaking of the apostles, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. What's he saying? You Corinthians, you're not hungry, nor thirsty, nor poorly dressed. You've got our money. You're buffeted. You're, you're not buffeted. You're not homeless. You don't even work with your own hands. Paul's saying you're living high on the hog with plenty of resources, plenty of good clothing, plenty of nice homes. And you can take offense to this. What Paul is saying is that you've never even had to work a day in your life. And you think, well, how is it that they didn't work a day in their life? Nobody in Greco-Roman culture worked a day in their life except for slaves and soldiers and servants. Everyone else was on vacation. Literally. This is not working class. This is not a working culture. The, the, the alternative to that was you had the aristocratic people that never worked, then you had the general people that never worked, and then you had the servants, slaves, and soldiers that worked their tails off, and then you had the destitute that worked the streets by panhandling at the agora or at the temple entrances or whatever. But that is Greco-Roman culture, like American culture is becoming. People don't want to work. You've never even worked. We, we don't have any of the things that you have, and we have to work with our own hands to make, to make ends meet. I, I go around preaching the gospel, and I don't believe that we should, that we should muzzle the ox, and, and, and the man who, who serves the gospel should draw his income from it, but I have to make tents. I work with my hands. You don't even work. You're on government cheese. I mean, he, he is just, he's dousing them with gasoline and holding the match to their feet. He's blasting them. This is hardcore. Paul's point is that the Corinthians needed to humble themselves and become like the apostles instead of desiring to be seen in the world as wise, strong, honorable, and well-supplied, because that's what they were after, having it all together and having everything because they're living their best lives now, instead of that mode, they should desire to serve Christ and serve him fervently and be totally okay with being seen as fools, as weak, as dishonorable, as despised, as last of all, because that is is the heart of the true Christian. I don't care to be impressive in the eyes of the world. Why would we want to be impressive in the eyes of the world that is going to be destroyed by fire? Why? Why do we care what the world thinks? Why do we compete in its coliseum of life? This is what he's teaching these people. It's amazing. They needed to humble themselves and become like the apostles, fools, weak, and dishonorable. Verse 12b, Paul continues in his comparison. He says, when reviled, we bless. Talk about the apostles, not the Corinthians. Verse 12c, when persecuted, we endure. Verse 13a, when slandered, we entreat. That means show kindness. This, what Paul's doing is he's, 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 he's comparing the Corinthians with, the, with him and the apostles. But really what he's doing is showing and revealing how the apostles reacted to cruel outsiders or just cruelty in general. Right? When people revile us, we bless. And when we're persecuted by outsiders or insiders or by Jews who think that, you know, Jews that think that Christ is ridiculous and all this, we endure. When we're slandered by people, we entreat them. The million-dollar question is, how did these high and mighty Corinthians respond to cruel outsiders? Now, this is nearly impossible to determine since the first epistle provides no clear examples of outsider attack. Okay, the problems that are dealt with in this first epistle are all internal. We, are, we know how the Corinthians dealt with each other, which was 
an abomination, so I doubt very seriously they would have responded very well to outsiders. And since this short list is both comparative and corrective, it could be that the Corinthians did the opposite of what Paul listed here. When they were reviled, they didn't bless their revilers, they cursed them. When they were persecuted, they didn't patiently endure that persecution or the persecutors, they fought back. And when they were slandered, they didn't kindly entreat their slanderers, they harshly repudiated them. I think that's what's going on here. You don't even follow our example in this. When people treat you horribly, you treat them more horribly, which is nothing like us and nothing like Christ. You should be ashamed of yourselves. And then lastly, in verse 13b, Paul wraps up his final, most devastating correction with an illustration that was meant to really just strike a death blow to the Corinthians' carnal view of the apostles and all their false views of themselves and everything else, their pride and everything else. 13b, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I wonder if Paul was citing Jeremiah 3.45 here. It says, you have made us mere offscurring and refuse in the midst of the peoples. This is Jeremiah saying this about the Israelites and what he believes God has made them to look like before the peoples when Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed them and took them off into exile. He's kind of crying over this idea that you've just made us the lowest of the low before the people. And Jeremiah regrets that, but he also knows it's their fault. I wonder if that's what Paul is quoting here. It's interesting, the Greek word for scum and Greek word for refuse literally paints the picture of you taking pots and pans and scraping off whatever you cooked in them and then throwing it out. It's the scrapings, the offscurrings. That's what it is. The apostles are rejected as if they are the scum and garbage of the world, the refuse that is washed down the drain or thrown on the garbage heap. The Greek words for scum and refuse were used figuratively of the lowest, most degraded criminals who were sometimes sacrificed in pagan ceremonies. You know, in, in some of these pagan cultures, they would take the lowest of the low and use them as a blood sacrifice to their own gods. And this is what Paul is saying. This is how the world views us apostles. We are pot and pan scrapings, the lowest of the low. We're not just POWs who are sentenced to death or, you know, toys for the, um, you know, for the entertainment of the Romans in the Colosseum as we're thrashed by lions and by gladiators. We're pot scum. That's what he's saying. That's how the world viewed them. Paul is not trying to elicit sympathy from the Corinthians at all. He's not saying, we're so low, will you feel bad for us? He doesn't care about that. He was working to reshape how they saw the apostles. He was challenging them to lower their view and see these faithful ministers of the gospel as humble servants, stewards, and steadfast in a steadfast commitment to the word. Not as great orators, not as faction leaders like the local philosophers. Don't get me wrong, Paul does not want the Corinthians to see them as the scum of the world. That is the world's view of the apostles, and it is a disgrace. He's not saying, look at us like we're the lowest. He's just simply saying, your view is the exact opposite of the world. It's so inflated. You've got us on thrones, and you're borderline worshiping us. Take us down some notches, please. That's all he's saying. And reshape the way you see yourselves because you don't have it all together. You're not ruling and reigning in this way that you think. You're not better than each other. Ultimately, he's challenging the Corinthians to follow the apostles' example and fulfill their basic, simple calling as Christians. They were not called to greatness and glory in the world, but to humility and service unto God. And if they followed the example that's given here by the apostles and throughout the New Testament, if they answered the call that is, that is clearly laid out in the New Testament, even here in a sense, if they, if they followed the example and answered the call, what would they become? Scum and refuse in the world, just like the apostles. 
because they'd be, in fact, living like the apostles. Paul's stern, sarcastic corrections. I think it's the hardest area in any of his epistles. I really do. This is just bombs away. This is carpet bombing. This is elbow to the face. This is just, I, I don't know if I can stress enough how intense and how hard this correction is. And I'll tell you what, these, this stern, these sarcastic corrections, they are no doubt, no doubt, would be and are unpalatable to our hypersensitive snowflake culture and to woke Christians alike. No tolerance for this kind of talk here. It's just too mean. It's just too cruel. It's not like the Lord who fashioned a whip and cleared the temple. Everyone forgets that. This is just heavy. It's mean. It's cruel. It's unacceptable. But it's actually quite gracious. You just have to pay close attention. It's very, very, very gracious. In verses 6 to 7, Paul worked to lead the Corinthians away from going beyond Scripture and suffering the just penalty for doing that. And that is what they deserved. But they were given grace in the form of stern, sarcastic correction. In verse 8, Paul worked to expose their pride, which is a detestable, deadly sin that literally brings death. That's what they deserved for their pride. But they were given grace in the form of stern, sarcastic correction. And of course, in verses 9 to 13, Paul compared the Corinthians with the apostles to further expose their pride, to reshape their views of the apostles and, of course, of themselves, and to hopefully return them to their Christian calling, which was not exaltation in the world, but humiliation. In Revelation chapter 2, all, chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through the end of chapter 3, we see that churches that exhibit this level of carnal worldliness and pride and these sorts of things, what do they do? They suffer divine judgment by having their lampstands removed. That's what the Corinthians deserved. More than Laodicea to be spit out, or more than any of the other churches that had become an abomination before the Lord to have their lampstand removed. This church, this church maxed it out, hit full RPM on the stupid scale. They deserved to have the lampstand thrown out, never to return. They deserved judgment, but that's not what they were given. They were given grace through stern, sarcastic correction. And so was those seven churches in Revelation 1 to 3. The same is true concerning us. If we have been playing fast and loose with Scripture, adding to, subtracting from, going beyond what it says... We deserve divine judgment, the plagues and all of it, but God is extending his grace to us through the exact same stern, sarcastic corrections. If we are prideful, and that's at the top of the list of deadly, detestable sins, if we are prideful, we deserve to be destroyed for that abominable pride. But God is extending his grace to us through the same stern, sarcastic corrections. If we have carnal views of others and of ourselves, we deserve divine judgment, but God is extending his grace to us through the same stern, sarcastic corrections. If we will humble ourselves, confess our iniquities, and embrace these wonderful, marvelous, totally undeserving graces through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God is faithful and just to forgive us. First John 1, 9. And yet if we spurn 
God's grace by rejecting these stern, sarcastic corrections, divine judgment will eventually come and bring us to utter ruin. My last words to you this morning are simple. May we embrace wholeheartedly God's grace and live and live. And we find that grace in the gracious one who came and lived this grace and secured this grace and gives this grace through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, and reign. Take the grace. Repent and trust in the Lord Jesus now. Amen.